Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Season 18 of Civil War Talk Radio. Thomas Wolfe in Look Homeward Angel wrote, Fiction is fact selected and understood. Fiction is fact arranged and charged with purpose. Professor of English and Civil War scholar Stephen Cushman proposes substitution of memoir for fiction in that quote as a way of understanding what some of the war's most famous memoirists were doing when they wrote about their wartime experiences. We'll talk with Professor Cushman, Cushman, author of The General's Civil War, What Their Memoirs Can Teach Us Today, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex, not from the Brewster Building for a number of reasons on the campus of East Carolina University, nor am I speaking for East Carolina University or for anybody else, and my guest likewise speaks only for himself tonight, as we always do. It's the last Wednesday in August of 2021, Uh, still not in the Brewster Building because uh, the Delta variant of the covid uh, epidemic is still with us, and so trying to stay off campus as much as possible. But it is good to be back talking with you tonight. Uh, I've enjoyed corresponding with many of you over the past uh, summer weeks. Appreciate the support in your letters and contributions to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund. But also glad to be back in class uh, here at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, we have started teaching face-to-face once again uh, for the first time in a year. After one 
day of class is all uh, that I can report on so far. But all the students, 100%, were wearing their masks in class as requested. And uh, we are hoping for a better result this year than last August when we started out. Uh, we're prepared for whatever happens. The administration of the university has required us as faculty to come up with continuity plans. What if we have to cancel class for a short time? And that happens many years. There's a hurricane or something. And then we've made plans. We'll use our online learning system called Canvas to stay in touch with students and supply them with assignments and record lectures. But this year, we've also been told to be prepared. What if we have to go online for the whole semester? That would be terrible. We'd have to use Canvas exclusively as we did last year. That's not our preference. And then finally, we were instructed also prepare a plan uh, to get everyone's phone number in case things are so bad that the internet is down and there's no way to use Canvas. And my response to the students for that is in the event of an apocalyptic disaster that has destroyed the internet, uh, keeping up with uh, U.S. history, uh, history 3010 or 30. 121 will be the least of your worries. So I'm, I'm not collecting their phone numbers if, if we can't use the internet, but we're done. Uh, among other things, we wouldn't be able to watch uh, television, which has certainly been an important part of many of us uh, surviving the, uh, uh, the the pandemic so far. Uh, I've been enjoying uh, binge-watching the uh, Premier League soccer documentary, Ted Lasso, for the last few weeks. But someone recently recommended a series called The Chair about an academic department chair. I watched 15 minutes of it last night and turned it off, could not stand it. Um, the endearing department bad boy was also clearly a character who was going to be redeemed in some way, had a heart of gold. Whereas in real life, the department bad boy is pretty much just bad. Uh, the Elderly professors, the fossils with tiny enrollments in their classes, uh, it looked clearly were headed towards some kind of redemption also, when in fact most of them really just need to change and update their work so that they don't have five students in a class while the rest of us are pulling down uh, 50 or 60 or 120. Uh, maybe they all learn to do that in the class, in the, in the show, The Chair, but I'm not sticking around to find out. You can email me if I'm mistaken about that show. Things that are going to happen that I am sticking around for include uh, upcoming shows here on Civil War Talk Radio. Amazing that we are doing this for the 18th time now, 18 seasons. Uh, and this one promises to be as interesting, uh, for me at least, as, as I hope you are finding it. Uh, next week we'll be talking about uh, William Barksdale, Confederate General. Biography of him has been written by John Douglas Ashton. We'll bring back John Reeves, friend of the show, with his new work on the wilderness, the first battle between U.S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. On the 15th of September, David Welker talks about the cornfield, Antietam's bloody turning point. On the 22nd of the month, Gil Hahn has a uh, work describing the campaign for the Confederate coast, blockading, blockade running, and related endeavors during the American Civil War. And we'll wrap up the month of September with John David Smith, someone I've long wanted to have on the show. He has co-edited a new volume of essays called The Long Civil War, 
new explorations of America's enduring conflict. You can find out about all these and everything else on the show from the Facebook page, Impediments of War, or the website, www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney keeps things going there. You can click on the links there by books that you hear about on the show. That helps Mark. Uh, You can help me directly by donating to the show. There are PayPal links there. It's not tax deductible. Don't don't try to get away with that. Uh, It's just a gift to me because you like the show. I appreciate it and use it to occasionally buy books and other things. Um, This week's book I have not bought because it's so new it's not in bookstores yet. I did get the electronic file from the publisher so I could prepare tonight's show. Uh, So I read this week's book on my my new Microsoft Surface. I know I've talked with you about buying an e-reader and I appreciate the many helpful suggestions you sent in. I ended up deciding to replace my old tablet with this version, the, the Microsoft Surface. It's much lighter than the old Walmart brand tablet I'd been using. It has a nice uh, aftermarket keyboard I got for it. So that makes Microsoft this week's fake sponsor of the show. They have paid nothing for it, but they get to be the official uh, whatever this is. It's not a quite a tablet or a laptop. The official whatever it is of Civil War Talk Radio is the Microsoft Surface for this week. Well, the book that I read on that uh, device uh, was written by Stephen Cushman, who is the Robert C. Taylor Professor of English at the University of Virginia. Uh, He's been on the show before, and it's a pleasure to welcome him back to open season 18. Steve, are you there? I'm here, Jerry. How are you? Good. Uh, How are you doing? It's your first week back in the classroom as well. Yes, I uh, I loved everything you said, and it's exactly the same here. Uh, the students, today was my first day back, and the students were all masked, and everybody seems upbeat and uh, as determined as we can be at this point to try and make it through. That's really all we can do. We, we could probably, you and I, spend the whole hour uh, kvetching about... Uh, the past year of online teaching and trying to make it work this year, but I don't think the listeners would would fully benefit from that, so maybe we should move on. But I do want to ask you, as an English professor, have you seen The Chair, this new series? You know, I was was very interested to hear you uh, talk about that. I I received, uh, I'm on a group that met last night online, and uh, let's see, there were six of us, Three are historians, three are English professors. All the historians had seen it and loved it. None of the English professors had seen it. (laughs) (laughs) I have not seen it, but uh, it seems to be what everybody's talking about. It it does. It was just too close to home. I mean, episode one, oh, they're gutting your budget. Everybody wants to take technology classes. No one thinks the humanities are important. And I thought, man, I live that all day. I don't need to watch that tonight. Um, so I, I, I'm sure it's better than I'm giving it credit for, but uh, but, but I skipped out on that. But the, but we're here to talk about your work, and as I said a moment ago, when when we scheduled this uh, discussion, your your new book was not yet available, and so before we talk about that book, which I have now read, uh, I want to say a bit about your previous book because I looked at that in case we needed that as a, a fallback. Uh, you co-edited with Gary Gallagher uh, a volume called Civil War Writing, New Perspectives on Iconic Texts. 
These are right. essays uh, about iconic Civil War texts. Uh, what? How does somebody qualify? What, what qualifies for iconic? Uh, that's a, that's a very good question. The uh, uh, we had a number of debates uh, between ourselves and with the with the press about the subtitle, but that's what we came up with. Uh, I think of, I mean, the word iconic for us comes from, originally from a religious context, and it just means an image that has special powers or significance. Um, In a secular context, it tends to mean something that's widely recognized, well-established, something maybe characterized by particular excellence or distinction, certainly the, uh, uh, an easy example in, civil, in the Civil War world would be Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, uh, the, the symbolic powers of which have spilled over into so many areas, secular, religious, around the world, and so that would be, that would be an easy example. After that, I think there's a kind of spectrum. Uh, I would certainly nominate something like Grant, U.S. Grant's memoirs. Those seem mm-hmm. to be a pretty safe bet. But after that, I think, you're, I think our, our writers, our contributors to the volume, are making their case for a particular work, often a forgotten work, being worth recovering, worth remembering, worth reevaluating now with an eye toward how important it was at the time that it was written. Maybe now it's passed out of people's view, but at the time, something about it made it uh, something people paid attention to. Like, what's an example of something that we've we've forgotten about uh, that, that you well, and, it, uh, and Gary? One thing, one is we, uh, Gary Gallagher and I have done two books uh, together <laughs> on in on this this round. But uh, for example, something you could take something like. Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, uh, which people haven't forgotten about, I guess, because these films have come out recently. But mm-hmm. but that's a book that, in its day, was a, was a, a bestseller and uh, a significant book, and has a major component of the war. Uh, more recently, uh, in this new volume, uh, something like James Longstreet's memoir uh, from mm-hmm. Manassas to Appomattox. That's a book very few people, my guess is, make it through anymore. It's a big book, and and uh, Longstreet is is a, a bit of a dutiful writer, but an uh, important book in in its day, particularly because here was Longstreet, the the uh, newly minted Republican, and so from the point of view of many lost cause people, just a hopeless renegade betrayer and. That's a book that that we shouldn't really forget about, uh, particularly in the in the context of current arguments about Confederate legacies. Um, a book we a book we had somebody write about was uh, Phoebe Yates Pember's book on nursing in in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Some people see that book, some people read that book, but a lot of people don't see that book. And and again, it's a a book that stands for more than just itself, because it is a book written from the Confederacy, written from a, a woman's point of view, nursing, becoming a, a, a woman's occupation much more than it had been. 
Uh, Another one might be uh, Gary Gallagher has a great essay on the works of uh, of Walter Taylor, Lee's Lee's adjutant, and those are books that probably none but specialists read anymore. But again, in their day, also important books. So you, you could argue that what we're interested in is bringing back bringing back into view works by wartime authors that a lot of people don't look at anymore for a variety of reasons. Now, this ties in with an, a, another question, and this maybe goes to the other book that you and, and Gary edited as well. Uh, the question of history and literature. Yeah. Uh, you, you pointed out uh, you were in a group the other night talking, English professors, history professors talking. Uh, you teach in English department, but you've written uh, substantially about the American Civil War. The the intersection of literature and history, on the one hand, well, you know, that's easy. The history is in the under letter E in the Library of Congress. You know, you know where to go. Uh, for your your history nonfiction books and the literature is in a different section altogether, uh, but it's clear from from what you've you've written in these books that, that you see this as much more uh, a, a much less hard boundary. I do. No, I, that's that's uh, uh, exactly right. There are a lot of ways to approach the conversation, but let's just start with what you mentioned, which is library classification. That, that library classification system at the, at the Library of Congress doesn't get going until 1897. And, and the question always is, what is something before we have a name for it? Uh, we, the Library of Congress didn't have a, a hard subject title for American literature until 1909. And yet we, we know there was lots of writing that we now call American literature before 1909. So these disciplinary boundaries, what what has come to fascinate me is that these disciplinary boundaries are emerging at exactly the same time that Civil War, the Civil War memory market is is cranking up after the war. Let me step in. that, that, That phrase, the Civil War memory market, is really the heart of much of what you write about in the new book. And we need to take a short break, so let's let's take one right here. Uh, we'll come back in just a moment, talking with Stephen Cushman. He is the author of The General's Civil War, What Their Memoirs Can Teach Us Today. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America. Variety Channel. Attention veterans, are you ready to be your own boss? It's time to launch your own ideas into reality. Discover your clean writing style. 
Gear up with Marine Corps trained motivator, Christina Silva. Christina is a positive energy promoter with a special gift in connecting with innovators. Get the Military Heroes 411 and glean from experts every week by listening to The Christina Silva Show. We're educating our veterans live on The Christina Silva Show, live at 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Stephen Cushman, author of The General's Civil War, What Their Memoirs Can Teach Us Today. And Steve, at the end of the first break, you said something really interesting about the the, the historicization of, of Library of Congress headings that we didn't that, that these didn't spring full, you know, you know, didn't generate themselves. That somebody had to create these, and that happened at the same time, roughly, that these generals' memoirs are being published, late nineteenth century to the early twentieth century. Uh, and this ties in with what you call the history, Civil War history memory market. Uh, what, what do you mean by memory market? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, what's interesting to me is, and then let's throw in one more uh, interesting fact having to do yeah. with literature and history. Uh, the Modern Language Association, my professional organization, is founded in 1883. The American Historical Society, your professional organization, is founded in 1884. So, so those, those, that, those divisions are happening right at this moment, and and what I mean by the memory market is is that we we have a I think we have a both historians and English people literature people have a somewhat naive view that people started generating these writings spontaneously combusting them in order mm-hmm. to record for posterity their recollections of the events between 1861 and 65, often with more on either side. And, and as, a, as a matter of fact, at least in, the, in relation to a lot of these books that we're talking about, particularly the General's Memoirs, those are, are written with an eye toward the, particularly the New York publishing market. Uh, what, happened, what happened after the war is uh, publishing a boom number of newspapers, magazines boomed, literacy skyrocketed. It's also interesting to know that in 1876, the American Library Association is founded, and these major publishers in New York who have done many of the books that we consider Civil War classics, Appleton, Scribner's, Harper's, uh, Lippincott is actually Philadelphia, these, these people are all competing fiercely for this newly literate readership that has money and is able to buy books that are now more cheap, uh, uh, cheaper to produce. And so when we see something like, say, Grant's personal memoirs, 
We say, ah, oh, a classic, a classic of Civil War history, a classic of American literature. But the only reason Grant wrote that book is because he was broke. And he, he made, or his widow, Julia, made the equivalent of almost $11 million in today's, in today's money because of Mark Twain. Uh, and that meant Grant had to break a previous agreement. He, Twain signed him up. This is a money-making venture. And, and, and he's not the only one. All of, them, all of them have an eye on the market. And the market, market forces are shaping what's going to sell. And, of course, as you and I know from the kind of writing we do, all somebody has to say is, this isn't going to sell. And you know we have to change it. We have to, we have to alter it. We pretend that those forces aren't really at work in memory, uh, particularly Civil War memory, but in, but in fact they were, and they, and they continue to determine a lot of what we see, we read, uh, we watch, we listen to. So, I mean, Samuel Johnson famously said, no man but a blockhead ever wrote except for money. Yeah, right. uh, and, and we do forget that, that these books happen for a reason. I would guess most people listening to this show know the, the story of Grant's memoirs and his, his final illness and his concluding the memoir in, those, in that dramatic fashion. But that's a rare exception where we know something about the book as a book. Uh, but you point out that this is true of all of these. In your, your chapter on Sherman and Johnston, you, you talk about how their, their memoirs influence each other, that, that they... Yeah, right. One of them has to come out first, and the other guy gets to read it. <laughs> exactly. And, and here's the other thing. They're both published by the same New York publisher, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, Appleton and Company. And so Johnston's comes out first, 1874. As, as Sher- we know from Sherman's that Sherman is reading Johnston, Johnston's memoir as he, Sherman, is writing. We also know that uh, Johnston's memoir didn't sell that well, and the publishers included an endorsement in a, in a subsequent printing, included a, an endorsement from Sherman of Johnston's book. In other words, we would say today they asked Sherman to blurb Johnston's book. Now, it, you know, that's a very interesting situation. We can argue about their tactics in various theaters of war. But here they are, locked, not locked, but certainly interconnected in a publishing venture, a publishing enterprise that actually is part and parcel of a growing friendship between them. So they then perform this growing friendship in public they, that friendship becomes part of Civil War memory. The famous story about uh, Johnston appearing at Sherman's funeral and supposedly catching his death uh, there, his, his pneumonia. Uh, and and th- many readers of the late 19th century just are fascinated by that story. And to them it becomes an image of reconciliation between at least these two figures and, and people they represent. And uh, all of that comes out of the, the publication venture of their respective books. 
Now, it's significant. They're, they're both published by the same publisher located in New York that this uh, – but one's a confederate and, and one uh, fight, fights for the, the federal side. So you don't have – you don't have a, a case of confederate separate southern publishers – uh, dominating a southern market, uh, but you've got a sort of reconciliation already taking place uh, in terms of what these publishers think they can sell. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Appleton is a fascinating case. I mean, Appleton uh, published Johnston and Sherman. Appleton also published Richard Taylor. Appleton mm-hmm. also published Jefferson Davis. Appleton also published the virtually unknown uh, memoir or or book by James Buchanan, and so they're working both sides of the street. To, you know, to them, the rest of us are free to talk about politics in any way we want. But they saw marketing to both sides as good business. Now, you mentioned Richard Taylor and his his book, uh, Destruction and Reconstruction. Many people. Uh, still have read, at least within the Civil War community, folks listening. Uh, to us, a fair number are, have read that. Uh, and if, if we haven't read it, m- many people are familiar with things that are taken from it. Um, would it be an exaggeration to say that uh, Taylor's book invents Stonewall Jackson as we know him? I, I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. Uh, Stonewall Jackson, maybe maybe Richard Yule to a certain extent as well. Uh, no, these... I think you're exactly right, and that the best part of that of that book. I, people may disagree about this, but it's mm-hmm. certainly the Valley Campaign, the early stuff, and uh, the early chapters, and and Taylor's portrait of Stonewall Jackson is stamped indelibly on Civil War memories, Civil War history, Civil War historiography, right on through. Now. Taylor's different from from the Sherman or Johnston memoirs, uh, and, and to some extent the others you talk about, Grant McCullough and so on, uh, in that he he seems the most self-consciously literary. He he is really uh, not doesn't put himself out as the simple soldier telling his basic military story. Uh, his book is aiming seems to aim to be literature. Absolutely no, I think that's true, and uh, he caught <laughs> he caught at least uh, one large volley of flack from uh, Jubal Early, who wrote a mm-hmm. a thirty page review of that book. It, it never was published, but it's it's in manuscript. And Early just basically says, "This is you know, if you're going to read this, you need to have a, a encyclopedia, dictionary of biography. This is very, as you say, self conscious arch." wannabe highbrow stuff. Interestingly, Taylor is uh, is not a West Pointer. He's not a professional soldier. Uh, he's the only one of the people I consider who, who isn't. And I think that there's also, in addition to his aspiring literariness, there's also a, a certain chip on his shoulder, perhaps you could say. Uh, no. I, I may not have been a professional soldier, but I was First of all, Lieutenant General, there weren't many of those in the Confederacy, and I can write a book. I can write a book that, in, in his <laughs> I've own I've read view, a lot more than you have. <laughs> I read a lot more than you, I can, and I'm going to let you know it. <laughs> he's, yeah, one of so the, he, he's, he's one of those. <laughs> exactly. Now, 
in some ways, um, this book might, one might say, well, that makes the book inaccessible to the modern reader, but you point out, uh, we don't have to have a, uh, a thesaurus and uh, reference books by our side, because we just have to have our phones, and we can Google everything right. it refers to. Yeah. Uh, but you also suggest that even so, this book is 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 not as accessible to 21st century readers. Uh, one one example uh, that that really struck me is you you talk about the definition of of the picturesque, the the contrast mm. between uh, the beautiful on the one hand and the the sublime and dramatic on the other, and that that Taylor. You, is picturesque in his descriptions, not just of the the valley itself, but of the the events there. Uh, but today's readers, uh, y- your argument is, we're interested in the dark turn uh, of looking at the Civil War as as all horror. Uh, that we can't uh, we can't access his vision of anything as being picturesque in wartime. No, and the, it, there's that there's that uh, anecdote that he talks about. He quotes Jackson uh, at, at Port Republic, uh, <laughs> saying, "Delightful, right? This this, this <laughs> the combat that they are that as it is unfolding is delightful, and <laughs> and that, assuming that Taylor is reporting accurately, and I don't see why he wouldn't be, that idea is anathema to to many people in." Who have who have any knowledge of say tw- the twentieth century wars, the early twenty first century wars, and so on? We we don't we don't uh, think of war as as having any element of pleasure or entertainment to it. And yet Taylor, for sure, but also some of the others clearly are when they turn to certain anecdotes or certain ways of writing about a a particular moment, they are clearly producing something that I won't say is entertaining, but certainly has aesthetic nourishment in it or aesthetic returns in it. And that's an idea that that we're not comfortable with, particularly, you know, certainly not since Vietnam. And of course, we have recent events all around us. We, We don't tend to go that way when we think about war. I, I wonder, though, are you perhaps shortchanging some 21st century readers, at least? And I'll suggest uh, anyone who's taken time out of their day to, to listen to us talk about the Civil War, who takes time to listen to a Civil War podcast, or is presumably somebody who's read a lot of these books and, and does so for, you know, out of their own volition, uh, that there, there is still an audience for this stuff. Uh, there are people who read these books uh, and aren't, aren't, I won't say for entertainment, that's, that's not the right word, but uh, for enrichment. Uh, yeah, enrichment is a good word. Yep, enrichment, instruction. No, I, I, you're, you're, you're very right. The, the, the conversation that would be interesting when we could have it now or just mm-hmm. everybody could think about it is, is, is there a... Uh, generational expire mm. by certain date shelf life on on what you've just said is this true of of people as we get down into their 30s their 20s people that you and I are teaching for example um, mm-hmm. how long will these books continue to be read that's one reason why we're interested uh, Gary Gallagher and I 
in this, these other books. That's why we're interested in, in trying to recover some, you know, bring some back. That mm-hmm. certainly some of your listeners, your, your committed listeners may know, but there are a lot that are on the border that know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, when was the last time anybody really sat down and read cover to cover uh, McClellan's own story? Right, the ver- the verdict has been turned in on McClellan. Most people dismiss McClellan, but that's a book that's really very interesting and 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 worth looking at. It, it's it, it's different from the other ones you you talk about here because uh, it it's well most memoirs are written near the end of of the author's life, but uh, he did not survive. Uh, to actually write the manuscript, and, and it's much of it is put together. Um, you have a great line in, in the book uh, in which you're talking about the, the editor, William Prime, who puts together posthumously McClellan's text plus various documents McClellan had written. Uh, you, you write, it is at this point that literary history and military history need to talk. Uh, I, I thought that was great. That, that we need to understand this book. We need to see see it not just as a military memoir, but but as a literary work as well. Uh, let's take another break and come back and talk about McClellan, and then especially about uh, U.S. Grant, who in many ways is the central figure uh, in this book. The book is called "The General's Civil War: What Their Memoirs Can Teach Us Today." The author is our guest tonight, Stephen Cushman. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Stephen Cushman, author of The General's Civil War, What Their Memoirs Can Teach Us Today. 
And we just turn to the topic of George McClellan uh, and McClellan's own story. Uh, but, uh, Stephen, this isn't really McClellan's own story uh, because he didn't uh, – he wrote his own story and it was destroyed in a fire. He didn't get to rewrite it. Uh, so whose story is it? It's, it turns out to be the, the editing work of, of William C. Prime, who is a Democratic – newspaper editor and a friend of McClellan's, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, somebody Twain, Mark Twain, detested, but recognized as skillful and able to, once again, produce a market-worthy product. And so Prime basically compiles a McClellan anthology, and some of it is McClellan's the part of his manuscript he was able to rewrite before uh, he died. But a lot of it is uh, com- comes from letters uh, that he wrote to his wife, Nellie, and, and these are very controversial. My own yeah. reading, and what, mm-hmm. I, what I try to say in the, in the chapter there, is that for the readership, reading this book in the 1880s, a readership that a lot of whom voted for McClellan if they were in the North and if they were in the South recognized McClellan as the person they'd rather see over Lincoln. This readership is going to be moved by those letters he writes to his wife. We, the the Civil War memory verdict on, on McClellan now is largely unfavorable. Uh, it's been advanced on many in many venues on many fronts by many people, but certainly anybody who remembers Ken Burns' 1990 Civil War series knows that McClellan is basically made to look like a goat in that, in that series. It turns out that, that there's a lot more there, and certainly a lot more there as, as McClellan is depicted in this collection of his writings. He's not always so arrogant. He's not always so sure. Uh, he confesses to weakness. He confesses to vulnerability. And and our access to those truths or those facets of his character depend on the book that Prime has edited and and then Twain has marketed. Uh, so I think that's a, a really good example of the way the Civil War memory market actually brought out a product that we have largely dismissed or forgotten or choose not to think about in some way. Stephen Sears' biography of McClellan uh, seems as the last word for a lot of people. It just it shuts yeah, the door on McClellan. And, and what a great book. Yeah. And so there's no need to go back and read McClellan's own story once you've read that. Uh, but you're suggesting we might benefit from uh, taking a look I, at these things. My own again. feeling is that is, is it's worth taking another look. Yeah, it's it, there. There's some. There's something there. There's more there than we now say uh, in a multiple choice test. McClellan was a good general, bad general, and people go check, and then that's that's the end of it. Conversely, uh, Grant's memoirs, which many uh, of us have read and continue to read and will continue to read. Uh, there may be less there than meets the eye in the sense that you you point out that he leaves out for somebody who appears to be very simply and artlessly presenting the whole story with little 
uh, amplification, uh, little decoration. Uh, you he's actually being very selective in what he decides to talk about. I think about. he is, and I, and I think that the... I knew I knew that in writing about Grant, I would be writing about someone that, about whom many many other people have written and written very well. That wasn't a problem for me writing about, say, Sherman's memoirs, because very few uh, literature people have have taken the time to really look at those. But in terms of Grant, a lot of people have written on Grant. Uh, what what I realized this time through, and like you, I I I continue to read it, uh, mm-hmm. teach it. Uh, what I realized this time through is that we all, a lot of us, repeat the mantra, oh, it's so cl- the prose is so clear, he's so frank, he's so straightforward, he's so natural. And as I read more and more of Grant, both the memoirs but also the earlier letters and papers, I, I realized that he wasn't born writing that way. He started out a very different writer uh, in his letters to his wife, all kinds of things as, uh, when he's writing in, from Mexico in the 1840s. Lots of flourishes and traces of influence by 19th century travel writers. And it's, his style becomes more chastened as he goes along, and particularly one of the things I argue in a section of that chapter is, uh, I think his use of the telegraph had a major influence on the style, the subsequent style of his writing. When it comes to selecting, you started this show with a with a quotation from Thomas Wolfe. When it when which it comes you, to selecting, mm-hmm. which I use in the book, yeah. Yes. Uh, w- when it comes to selecting the material, what what you start to notice is there is stuff missing. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he never talks about, uh, Twain, Twain makes a comment about this, he never uh, talks about drinking. There's, you, mm-hmm. you, would, you can read that book up and down, you would never know that he took a drink. Uh, there's a, I think the, the interesting example that, that I focused on at one point, is the, cor- the correspondence about Cold Harbor with, with Robert E. Lee. Uh, Grant, Grant knew that in telling his own story, he would have to deal with Cold Harbor at some point. And there is no way for Grant to make his decisions at Cold Harbor look really great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, what he does, uncharacteristically for him, is he starts quoting lots of letters back and forth between him and Lee. Well, if you go back and look at the correspondence, actually, they're not all there. And mm. he, has, he has picked uh, the ones that he wants, and, and he comes out looking like the person who tried to alleviate the suffering of the wounded between the lines, and Lee was intransigent and so forth, intransigent. But, but that's not what the record shows when you actually look at it. Uh, also, for somebody who was nicknamed the Butcher during the Overland Campaign by many of the Northern mm-hmm. papers. That's a, that's a pretty bloodless book, uh, certainly compared to you know, Frank Wilkinson's memoir a few years later uh, or stories by Ambrose Bierce or, or mm-hmm. so on. It, there, there's not a lot of dark war in, Grant, in Grant's memoir, and yet you know from the record, from many things, that there's a lot of darkness around him. 
that that's an interesting point you make that it's not because the generals in the Civil War were like uh, World War One Allied generals living in a chateau twenty miles behind the lines, didn't not knowing what's happening at the front. Uh, these guys did. They 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 died in in a higher percentage than than uh, yeah. Uh, than, than privates did in some cases, and and you mentioned some instances where Grant talks about uh, having to leave a field hospital because he couldn't stand the the suffering. Uh, he knows what's going on, but he he doesn't uh, doesn't dwell on it. And that actually brings me to to sort of a central question about the book: uh, Why, in an era when when we mostly focus on the experiences of uh, everyday people, people you and I would know, people who uh, serve in the ranks in in the military as opposed to the highest leaders. Why generals? That, that's a yeah. chapter title as yeah, well as I, I mean, when I went into this project, I, I thought that what I would be talking about was, in the beginning, New York publishers published generals, and then with certain developments in social history in the 20th century, people became less interested in great leaders, great figures, that kind of thing. As it turns out, the more I dug, the more I found personal narratives, Civil War narratives are are already appearing in large numbers from 1861 on. So that by the time Grant and the others come along, this, this Civil War, this memoir bonanza has been in progress for quite a while. They're joining something already in progress. What what makes them worth what makes generals worth focusing on from my point of view mm-hmm. is that they did to personal memoirs what Civil War photographers did to photography. They accelerated its development so that a genre that we have Winfield Scott saying when he wrote his memoir, you know, you know public people don't write their memoirs, and, and Scott is, uh, is not happy about this. He's saying great people, public servants, military leaders, political leaders, they should write their memoirs, and, and we aren't doing that. Well, that's in the 1860s. Now, you can't walk into a bookstore without seeing the latest memoir by somebody important. And what the reason I'm interested one reason I'm interested in in these generals memoirs is they are they are the uh, ancestor they are the initiator of the current memoir boom that we take for granted now. Somebody finishes public office, we assume that he or she will proceed to a lucrative book contract, and here comes the memoir. That hasn't always been the case. And it is these, it is this market of very public, very famous figures who figure prominently in the development of what we now take for granted as these memoirs. Now, you subtitled the book, and we've just got a few minutes, so what their memoirs can teach us today. And it seems to me one of the things that you argue is that, yes, today we have all these I, first-person books, 
uh, and Grant's book is too, and Sherman's and, and Johnson's are also, but that they weren't just writing about themselves. That, that, yeah. That, that they transcend the individualism that we expect today. Is that is that accurate? No, I think that is accurate. The uh, what, what one of the we take for granted now when we read a, a memoir that it will be written in the first person and that the first person I is the sign of authenticity and the sign of truth telling and the sign of just telling your own story. It wasn't always that way. Uh, Caesar wrote his 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 uh, commentaries in the third person. Winfield Scott wrote his book in the third person, and so the the development of first person narrative is is a largely nineteenth century phenomenon in the United States. Most famous in American letters would be Twain's Huckleberry Finn, which interestingly enough comes out of the United States the same year that he signs Grant up to write his memoir. What, what, what started out in the 19th century with the generals as a really good rhetorical tool for telling a public story that, about events that everybody knew, mm-hmm. it seems to me, and your, your listeners may disagree, mm-hmm. it seems to me has contracted in our moment into... Uh, all that matters is my story about how I see things, and I think that I think that uh, it's easy to blame social media and so on. But certainly, the rise of technologies that allow anyone to put out anything about the, what he or she thinks is different from those long books, those long memoirs that took years to write and forced people to be thoughtful and forced people to do research. There, I mean, all the people who wrote those books are checking documents that are coming out. Now, basically, something happens. Jerry has an opinion. Jerry puts it out there. And, and then maybe everybody pays attention. Maybe nobody pays attention. But... But that, I think, is a very, even though it's a first-person phenomenon, mm-hmm. it's very different from how it started with these generals. And, and just a side note on that, uh, with the exception of, of the McClellan book, for reasons we, we talked about, uh, these people all do write their own books. These are yeah. not, uh, not ghost-written, as so many modern memoirs are. Well, Stephen, this was a fascinating book. I enjoyed reading it. It made me want to reread some of them that I'm familiar with and read others that I haven't taken time to read yet. Uh, listeners, you will enjoy and be enriched by, I will say, uh, The General's Civil War, what their memoirs can teach us today. It's by our guest tonight, Stephen Cushman. Steve, always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks so much, Jerry, and thanks to your listeners. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.